Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Do you think what happened to Tom was related to his work with Washington Ceasefire? Oh, absolutely. Girlfriends, spouses, ex-spouses. You want to know where were you at the time of the shooting? But in this particular case, we'd had some pretty strong headbutting. Go through that door and come battle me on these issues. God, that sounds like him. This is Episode 5, The Assassination of Tom Wales. I'm your host, David Payne. who know who we killed will you. never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no idea. They could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. And I never thought I'd be here 15 years later. When Tom Wales was shot and murdered in his own basement some 16 years ago, there wasn't a lot to go on immediately. A neighbor had seen a shadowy figure of a single man leaving hurriedly from the scene and driving away. But there was no description of the car, no description of the man, no fingerprints. Only the spent shell casings on the ground outside and the bullet slugs in. And yet, I was struck by how often people involved said this was an assassination. It basically, to me, was like an assassination. I mean, this was an assassination. This was a well-planned assassination. This always struck me as, well, a bit presumptuous. Really, it was only an assassination if Wales was killed for his work as a federal prosecutor. I wasn't so sure. Just from an odd standpoint, it seemed to me to be a stretch that Wales was killed because of his work. I couldn't remember that ever happening to any other AUSAs, but I wanted to check in with an expert. I'm wondering if you can share with us how common is it for AUSAs to be threatened in the line of duty. Well, I think it happens way more often than it should. I That's Larry Lizer, an AUSA in the Eastern District of Virginia and the founder of the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys. Can you share with us how common it is for threats to be acted upon, for there actually to be some type of violent episode? Well, fortunately, it doesn't happen all that frequently, in part, because the Marshal Service does a superb job in taking the appropriate steps when necessary. Have any federal prosecutors been assassinated in the line of duty? Yeah, tragically, colleague Tom Wales in Seattle was assassinated, and that case has never been solved. The FBI has an open investigation on it. Here again, that word, assassination, It seems like even people without direct knowledge keep using it in connection with Tom's killing. Is he the only one? As far as I know, he's the only one that's actually lost his life. I think all criminal defendants realize that, if anything, we more vigorously pick up the case than just walk away from it just because someone makes a threat, even if they carry that threat out. There's always another soldier in line. 
Absolutely. One of the other reasons these threats don't typically result in deadly violence is that it's the exceptional case where personal animus arises between a prosecutor and defendant, particularly in a white-collar criminal case, the type that Tom prosecuted. Katarina Booth, the Boulder, Colorado prosecutor in the Kimball case, put it this way. White-collar crimes, I mean, honestly, you don't get off as fired up. You can, of course, and it's those sympathetic stories of, let's say, somebody takes this poor you know, elderly couple's life savings. Of course you're going to get fired up on those. But when you're oftentimes the insurance frauds and stealing from a bank and it's just more money from a bank or an insurance company, it doesn't tug at your heartstrings like that. And Whale's caseload was exactly that, mostly bank embezzlements. So prickly personality or not, it seemed to me it would have been very weird if Tom had been going to work every day with the type of chip on his shoulder that might generate the animus one might see in a revenge killing. But I wanted to check myself and not let my personal biases affect the analysis. So I asked former AUSA and CNN correspondent Jeffrey Tubin what he thought about the various motives for killing whales and whether he believed that Tom's work as an AUSA was related to his death. You know, Tom Wales led a pretty quiet existence and did not have a lot of enemies. He was divorced, but he was amicably divorced. Obviously, when anyone is killed, you always look at family members. And there was nothing in Wales' private life that suggested anything like a motive for murder. He had a very congenial relationship with his ex-wife. I didn't attach any names to these sort of theories that came out of his personal life. They seemed too far-fetched to me, which 16 years later, I'm perfectly prepared to be proven wrong. But, you know, I just had to make the judgment of what I saw in front of me. And what I saw in front of me was that these were not avenues worth pursuing. So the only place to look for a motive was his work as a prosecutor. And once you start looking at the cases he prosecuted and part of Wales' career that is noticeable is that he didn't prosecute a lot of cases. He was kind of a slow moving, not very efficient prosecutor. Two people who knew a lot about Tom Whale's caseload, as well as his reputation as an AUSA, are also journalists. Steve Militesh and Mike Carter are two veteran reporters for the Seattle Times, who not only knew Whale's personally, but who have been reporting on his murder investigation for 16 years. Well, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing, and then we'll jump right in. The format for We meet Militesh and Carter at the GeekWire offices in Ballard where we can scarcely contain the questions that have been nagging us on this case. Why don't we start with just some names, intros. Sure, Steve Militich. I'm a criminal justice reporter at the Seattle Times. I've been a reporter for more than 40 years, focusing a lot on courts and crime and police reform. I'm Mike Carter, Seattle Times, federal courts and criminal justice reporter, legal affairs. I've been a reporter since 1976, We've read, I think, every byline on this case that both of you have written and some of the others in the office contributed to. Sure. Why has this story captivated you guys so much? I think there's the mystery of it. This was an attack on the rule of law. I work with Tom. I worked, I cover his office. I know a lot of people who knew him. It appeared to be a vendetta, a retaliation against a prosecution, and that cuts it at the fundamental core of the criminal justice system. 
Plus, it's never, I mean, there's never, if indeed Tom Wales died in the line of duty, that's never happened before. I think more importantly, it's a case that has just stuck in our craw. It's stuck in my craw. There is something about this case that sticks in the craw of anybody who looks at it in any depth. And it seems like the only way to get it unstuck, at least if you're a journalist, is to see for yourself what it was about Wales' work as a prosecutor that may have gotten him killed. I've been going through every pleading that has the word Wales in it for the past couple days. Wow. (laughs) You mean in his work as an AUSA? 18 years. Oh, my God. All the way back. All the way back. Oh, my God. Wow. All the way back. And I'm still trying to find that nugget, too. My review of Tom's caseload would take me about two weeks in total. It is mind-numbing and tedious. And I feel genuine empathy for the FBI investigators who surely traveled this road before me. I'm looking for evidence for how Tom comported himself, how he managed his caseload with pleas or trials, and how he represented himself. Was he capricious, vindictive? Look, we've all known them. The arrogant lawyers with some modicum of power. I wanted to make sure I wasn't blaming the victim, but my thinking was this. If Tom was killed in the line of duty, maybe he had done something unusual to instigate it, and that created a motive. Or had he simply poked the wrong bear? Coming through the government databases, I learned a lot about Tom, at least about his job, his career, and choices. Frankly, I wasn't prepared for what I found. Did you get a sense of what and who the real Tom Wales was? Well, yeah. I mean, I had the sense of him as a fine person without enemies in his personal life. But he was also prickly and not a very successful prosecutor. He was someone who took way too long on cases and was not very productive and not the easiest person in the world to get along with. All of which led me to conclude that He was a real human being with the kind of complexity that we all have. Look, I gotta be honest. I'm not especially comfortable criticizing Tom's performance without firsthand knowledge, but it's relevant to the story to understand what was going on at the time of his murder. Here's what I saw from the data. By the time Tom was killed, he was managing an extraordinarily light caseload, less than a dozen cases a year. And the quality of cases he pursued was, well, kind of minor league. Literally bank teller embezzlement cases involving less than $10,000 made up the majority of his cases. In over 100 cases he took to some resolution, less than one-third actually resulted in jail time for a defendant, reflecting the relative inconsequentiality of the charges. How much did you guys go into Tom's cases? How deep did you go? Pretty deep, deep enough. I pulled everything that had his name on it in Pacer for 10 years and looked at every case. He didn't do a lot of violent crime. You know, it was not really his gig. He liked these cases to be big, these big, long. He was a thinking man's prosecutor. But he was also known when it got to sentencing or, you know, some kind of outcome of the case for looking for ways to be creative and compassionate. I think with, like, bank fraud or... That's exactly the term that came to my mind when I read through, because he agrees often with the probation office to go to the lower end of the guidelines for a number of his defendants. Yeah, yeah. I think he felt 
the need to hold people responsible, but not to ridicule them or send them to prison for a long time, you know, except in the cases where you know, he felt that was appropriate. Yeah, he was kind of an odd duck in that office. Pouring through year after year of Tom Whale's cases, I finally uncover something that might be meaningful. It involves a defendant named Michael Norman Katz. You seem excited. Did you find something? I did. I did. I finally found a case that is more than like seven pages of a docket. This one is about 26 pages, just the docket sheet alone. And it's a wire fraud, income tax evasion case, but it involves a guy defrauding Nissan of $1.9 million. So this is by far Wales' biggest case that I've come across so far. It's interesting. It sounds like it's something substantial. Yeah, I can't tell yet. I'm going to pour through this, but at least there's a file of some substance in here. So stand by. I'm standing by. My deeper dive into the remainder of the file revealed an interesting fact pattern. After a contentious round of pretrial proceedings, Katz would plead guilty and Wales would dismiss four of the six counts against him. Katz would go to jail for three years, but while he was in prison, he filed appeal after appeal on his sentence, claiming that the government, represented by Wales, had provided inaccurate information to the probation office, resulting in a higher sentence. Katz would lose all these appeals. But that wasn't the end of the relationship between Michael Norman Katz and Tom Wales. When Katz got out of jail and was serving a period of supervised release in Texas, the government brought him back to Seattle to show cause why he shouldn't be sent back to jail again for failing to pay the $1.9 million in restitution. Not necessarily unusual, except for the fact that the government's point person for handling the appeal, well, he was shot through his daylight basement window just four days before the hearing. Did you come across the name of Michael Norman Katz? Does that ring a bell? It doesn't ring a bell. Now you're going to have me back. I'm going to have you go back at Michael Norman Katz. (laughs) I don't recall that name. I don't recall that name. Who is he? He was someone that Tom prosecuted. It was one of his bigger cases. It was involving Nissan, defrauding of Nissan, a wire tax, wire fraud case. Well, I don't recall it. Yeah. So I wondered if that came across your radar. No, no, I don't. Did not jump out at me if I saw it. You know, people violate probation all the time. You obviously, something about his case got your attention. Well, so the Katz case stuck out like a sore thumb to me just because it was a massive docket. The guy had nine lawyers, so you get a sense of the type of personality over time. He was an attorney, too. Have you talked to him? He's dead. Uh, And when did he die? A while ago. Was it Tom who, I mean, usually when someone gets their probation violated, it's usually done by a probation officer. That's right. It's referred back to the prosecutor, and there's a determination on whether they'll proceed with a court violated. Did Tom handle that particular aspect of the case, too? He did. Oh, that's interesting. Has he got any history of violence? This Katz guy? Not that I know of. Any indications that the FBI talked to him? or No indication. But the FBI is not talking to us. <laughs> Good luck with that, man. Despite the interesting timing, the obvious anger by Katz and being hauled back into court, and the drama of the multi-year case, I'm still having a hard time seeing it. What benefit would Katz get by whacking the prosecutor? He'd still have to pay the restitution or go to jail. 
Another soldier would be lined up behind him to press the court for that. And frankly, it was really the judge, not the prosecutor, making that determination at that point. In the end, I just don't see it. Like how Tubin felt about the personal motives, this cat's angle just doesn't make sense to me. So I pick up the files again and grab the final one in the stack, the one I've saved for last. It's the largest case file in Tom's career and the last case that he would ever handle. Case 201-CR-00249. It's titled USA v. Kim Stafford Powell, Chester Raspberry, James Coulaton, Intrex Helicopters, Inc., and Air, Inc. And there's one more defendant. For reasons you will quickly understand, we're going to call him by an alias. Let's call him Steve Jackson, or just the pilot. Because Steve Jackson, well, he's currently a first-chair pilot for a major U.S. airline. Brought under a single indictment, this case file reflects two separate and distinct fact patterns involving the alleged improper retrofitting of military helicopters. Basically, these guys were charged with taking surplus Huey helicopter hulls that were manufactured by Bell, bolting on a variety of parts, and then representing them as civilian Bell helicopters that could be used to ferry passengers for firefighting, logging, and other lucrative government contracts. And now, Weeks after searching through all of Wales' cases to find someone, anyone, who might have had a deadly grudge against Wales, I understand why the FBI was focused here, too, to this particular case file. You see, there was simply nothing else in Wales' caseload that I could see that would generate more heat, passion, or anger that might create a motive for an assassination than CR-00249. In 1998, Tom's friend and former boss at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Bob Chadwell, was at work when he got a call to represent one of the defendants in this helicopter case, a man with the Willy Wonka-like name of Chester Raspberry. Raspberry had been swept up in Wales' helicopter investigation, and while the circumstances of this case may be difficult to follow, they are critical to understanding who may have killed Tom Wales. And how did you become involved, if you can explain that, with any of these cases? Well, I was retained by a fellow out of California who had a helicopter services company who had received a subpoena. What time frame was this? Probably three years before Thomas killed. Had you ever heard of this issue before, of these modifications of helicopters for civilian use? I had heard of it, yeah. And in Vietnam, Bell Helicopter produced thousands and thousands of Huey helicopters. And these helicopters had been used in a variety of ways. And I don't know if you're familiar with an outfit called Air America. Air America was a front company for the CIA. It operated out of Southeast Asia, and it operated all kinds of aircraft, including Hueys. So these helicopters were just prolific. So I had heard specifically about these helicopters being used in logging. So how did this situation become a criminal case? What was going on at the time? Explain that. The theory 
that was put forth by Bell's helicopter, Bell Textron, was that there was a radical difference between the helicopters that were made for the military and the helicopters that were made and sold for civilian use. The military never gets what's called an airworthiness certificate. And so the argument was that these helicopters had never gone through the kind of rigorous testing that was necessary for an airworthiness certificate. Why was Bell so interested in this? Was it a business issue or Money. a safety issue? Money. Why? Well, if you've got 10,000 or 12,000 used Hueys out there that can do the job of a commercial aircraft and you can buy it for a song, why are you going to pay Bell Textron $2 million or whatever the price was? In my opinion, it was basically financial. There were misrepresentations made about the safety of operating one of these aircraft that I don't believe was accurate. So why did the U.S. Attorney's Office bite on this? I think they were oversold by people from the FAA who sold it along with Bell as a safety issue. I didn't quite know what to make of this criminal case involving the rebuilding of helicopters. And I had asked both Carter and Jeffrey Tubin what they knew about its genesis. That was a funky prosecution anyway. The whole thing really was, was kind of strange. It really was and an odd case. Did you follow that case or just... I was aware of the case. I have a board full of sticky notes with case numbers on them of cases that I stumble across in the federal docket that I keep track of. And I, it's one that I was watching to see how it was going to play out. But it wasn't a high-profile prosecution by any stretch. It was such a weird case. I don't know if when you looked at it. It's just, it was just a, a, a bizarre case. And I had no idea that the underlying conduct was even a crime. And Whale's fixation on it was kind of bizarre because it wasn't like was accused of stealing from people, hurting people, even placing people in real danger. It was this peculiar case about how and whether you can retrofit helicopters. The whole notion of the U.S. Attorney's Office spending time and resource on this helicopter refit issue, well, it seemed a little bit odd to me. But Wales and his colleague Bob Westinghouse would investigate and pursue this case for over three years. In the summer before Wales was murdered, after indictments had been handed down from the grand jury, the case would unravel when, according to Wales, he discovered that an FAA expert disagreed with the fundamental assumption of his case, namely that retrofitting helicopters with military surplus parts was inherently dangerous. In an apparent effort to save face, Westinghouse and Wales offered a deal to the defendants. Have the two corporate defendants, Air Inc. and Intrex, plead guilty to misdemeanors, and they would dismiss the indictments against all the other personal defendants, Powell, Raspberry, Culleton, and Jackson. Chadwell snatched the deal for Air Inc., Raspberry, and Culleton. It was one of those things where you could spend a gazillion dollars, or you could take a resolution that let you get on with your life and was nominal. You know, that was the decision that the client made, that it's cheaper to do this. 
Did you ever After we pled, we stayed completely away. We didn't want to have anything to do with it. We backed away and uh, took our marbles and went home. But one of the helicopter co-defendants, well, he didn't want to take his marbles and go home. The pilot. He was furious and was demanding nothing short of a full exoneration, something that Wales wasn't prepared to do. So Wales did what any smart prosecutor would do. He played the last two defendants off one another. He got Kim Stafford Powell to sign a plea deal on behalf of his and the pilot's company. Intrex Inc. would plead guilty to a misdemeanor, and Wales would dismiss the indictment against both Powell and the pilot. But for reasons we may never fully understand, Wales included about 190 words in the plea proffer that, like a pebble in a pond, would reverberate across the water for the next 16 years. The sole fact pattern in the plea deal that Wales got the pilot's partner to sign said that Jackson and Powell had conspired with a helicopter mechanic named Ricky Boatwright to falsify the logbook for the helicopter they were rebuilding, something the pilot vehemently denied, and something Ricky Boatwright would deny to us some 16 years later, too. When the plea deal was done, it was signed by Wales for the government and Powell for Intrex. Mike Carter, with his board of sticky notes, got the tip. You wrote an article on July 18th, 2001. So this was three months before the killing. That'd be correct. Short article very, very about the, short about article. About the plea. Couldn't have been six paragraphs long. Yeah, I remember that article where you specifically identified the pilot as the president of Intrex. Right. This short article by Carter, which identified the pilot by name and as the president of Intrex, sent the pilot into a tailspin. And he picked up the phone and called Carter. I'd had some threats, uh, threatening email and, and a threatening phone call from the defendant in that case. And the pilot was demanding a retraction on a story that I'd written on the guilty plea of his company to this infraction. And he had claimed that there was an error in the story. And I had called Tom up and Tom said, no, it's correct. The news release was correct. If you have any problems come to me. I've got documentation. He knew about this guy. He knew the the sorts of threats and the sorts of noise that the pilot was making at that time. And so Tom just said that he'd help me out if anything came of it. Was the gist of his complaint that he was personally named? I think the gist of his complaint was that his title, wasn't it? It was the fact that we had identified him as the president, which he was on paper for about 15 minutes, I think, before the whole thing ended. But nevertheless, there was a document that identified him as the president. The play agreement. Of Intrix. You know, I duly reported that. He was just pissed. He was just obviously really angry about it. You know, he called the newspaper to complain about the article. And I don't remember whether he mentioned Tom particularly, but he was pretty angry. Did he say explicitly or did you read into it that his concern was that he would lose his job as a pilot? Was that no, he didn't get into any about what the ramifications were, more that just the information was wrong and he wanted it fixed. To be honest, that seemed a little weird, that the misidentification of the pilot's title as the president of Intrex instead of the vice president would cause such vitriol. Clearly, uh, people had their backs up in the case. 
Did he physically threaten you or no. just ask you to retract the story? He was demanding a retraction, but he was clearly very, very upset, very angry, pretty irrational. Yeah, guy. I have a vague recollection of it. And Mike just talking about how loud and angry this person I, was. I actually wrote a note I've still got somewhere to my editor about the conversation because it concerned me. And I'm, I'm a criminal justice reporter. People get mad at you all the time. But every now and then you get one where you think, oh, the guy's going to sue or he's going to do something else. And I was concerned that there was going to be legal action or whatever I was thinking. I felt that I needed to alert my editor about it. My impression has always been is that Wales and the pilot just were anathema. They did not. There was a conflict between Oil and water. If you look at any of the transcripts from the trial, any of the hearings, I mean, there's just a lot of animosity going on back and forth. It's a very, very hard-fought case for what really is kind of a rinky-dink crime. And he was out a lot of money. The guy was really into cash. He really liked his lifestyle. He liked to have his girls and his guns and his cars and his house over in Beaux Arts. And this was costing him a fortune. The fortune that this was costing the pilot was $125,000. That's the amount of money the pilot sought in a lawsuit he filed against the government and Wales after the dismissal of the helicopter suit. There was a malicious prosecution was, action was, filed by the pilot. You know, they made very specific allegations about the government's handling of the case and sought compensation for the costs incurred by the pilot. And then the government responded with a brief that was carefully written, but I believe had some kind of, if the court wants to know more about the violent tendencies or something. Retributive nature. Retributive nature. (laughs) Yeah. Now with his back against the wall and the pilot challenging his ethics in bringing the helicopter case, Wales had escalated. Attached to the carefully written brief written by his colleague Peter Muller was a four-page affidavit from Wales in which he doubled down on his allegations against the pilot. Wales laid out a much deeper case of knowledge and fraud against the pilot than the plea proffer ever did. This war of words between the two men would continue throughout the summer before Tom's death. And unlike the bank tellers he typically prosecuted, it seemed that Wales had finally met someone with an equally stiff upper back Someone who also wouldn't let the bone go once he locked his teeth into it. I asked Bob Chadwell how he would characterize the pilot's demeanor. The individual was unusual. He was a bit of quirky personality. I never had a conversation with him. I only met him a couple times. In what way? Like, Just, I'm not sure I can quantify it. I just didn't get the reaction I was anticipating. Kind of an odd affect. Yeah, that's a good way. Socially off foot. Yeah, I don't know. I did, I don't know if that's whether he thought, well, you jerk, it's your client that got me into this. I just found it that he was an unusual individual, and yet he held a job full time as a professional pilot. We have a president of the United States that holds a job. Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. There it is. As the summer of 2001 wore on, now it was Tom Wales' turn in the barrel as a defendant in a case. And the man with the righteous sense of justice and the man with the so-called odd personality were locked in a heated duel 
a duel that would, by virtue of Tom being shot in the middle of it, turn the FBI's focus squarely on the pilot before the blood dried on Tom's basement floor. It had happened so close to the homicides, within weeks, a few weeks of it, that it had stuck out in my head. And so when Tom gets shot, one of the first things that we all start looking at is what cases was he working, Why? who would do this? And I think in everybody's mind, it wasn't just me. I think Westinghouse jumped to that conclusion immediately. I believe a number of other people may have. The proximity of the threat and the anger with the homicide was just too much to, for anybody to ignore. I mean, clearly, if any investigator would have looked at that. Over the course of the last 16 years, it has become increasingly obvious to anyone looking at this case that the pilot is and was the FBI's prime suspect. His houses have been searched multiple times. He's been the subject of wiretaps. He's given handwriting samples. And basically, the FBI has scrutinized every aspect of his life these past 16 years. As we knew from Larry Lizer, there was indeed another soldier lined up to take Whale's place after his death. And the government continued to fight the pilot in the malicious prosecution suit and his attempts to get the helicopter back from the FAA. When you asked about, you know, what kind of things corroborated our belief that he was a focus, there actually were court documents filed by the special prosecutor in this case that made it very clear that the pilot was a focus of the investigation. Yeah, Clymer intervened in that case right. and came in and filed documents in the right. property return case. So that was your first indication, at least in paper, that... Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was the first official. I think I wrote a story to that effect. I think you did. That said that th- this is the first time on paper that we know that the pilot is under investigation, and that he continues to be, and that they considered him a strong enough suspect to actually intervene in this seemingly minor matter over property. But when I asked Carter and Militish to lay out the FBI's case against the pilot, these veteran ink slingers stumble for the first time in our discussion at a loss for words. You guys have been reporting on this case now for 16 years. You know the case probably better than anybody knows the case in terms of civilians. Can you lay out for me the FBI's case against the pilot, what that looks like? What are the pieces of that? Boy, that's... I have to think about that a minute. Um, um, In like a summary fashion. Yeah, that's hard to do. Even after listening to the stories about the threats and the personality clash, yeah, it was hard to do. While the anger that the pilot felt was not only visible in the threatening phone calls to the newspaper but in the many court pleadings that would follow the dismissal. When you step back from it, the thing I couldn't understand was how that anger translated into a motive for someone to risk their freedom, no, their life, by killing whales. After all, should that anger have been mitigated with relief at the dismissal of the helicopter case? It was a federal lawsuit against and Powell on the use of this helicopter, mm-hmm, right. a trademark infringement case going on at the same time as the, the criminal case, case right. the criminal case right yeah they faced some not only potential prison time which i found to be just bizarre 
but significant civil penalties. But again, the whole thing came undone. It was handled as an infraction. I mean, that happens in federal. It happens in prosecutions. You would, you, would have, you would have thought that the pilot would be relieved that he got out from under that because the Bell Textron case got dismissed. Right. And he walked away with his, he walked with his away. name. By the time the plea was done, when the plea papers were signed, there was nobody's name attached to the infraction. It was just the company. He didn't have to go to prison, and he wasn't facing the civil penalties. So there we were. I could see why the FBI and Special Prosecutor Clymer were focused on this pilot from the start. This active litigation against Wales at the time of his death was certainly interesting fodder. But given that the pilot had dodged a bullet in the helicopter case, would he really be on the other end of the gun? The FBI's theory was there was a slow-burning fuse of anger revealed in the pilot's actions after the dismissal. But I knew there had to be something more to this story, and that the answers to our questions would lie deep in the woods of Washington State. Next week on Somebody Somewhere... And so when I heard it was Tom who was dead, that was just about the first thing that popped into my mind. And it looked like the FBI locked in on that pretty quickly. Yeah, he showed me the Makarov, and that was a strange moment. He was intelligent. He was dogged, but maybe even a little bit crazy. He thought the guy was capable of doing almost anything. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. These guys are awesome, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. And thanks to our friends at GeekWire for letting us use their studio. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. An original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. <laughs>